Hosea is a stunning, if difficult, prophetic book set within a time of severe political turmoil in 8th century Israel. Kings are dying, alliances are being formed, a showdown with the Assyrian Empire is imminent, and within this historical reality, the people of Israel have become rebellious and unfaithful. They have even included worship of other gods into their normal routines. All of this informs the well-known image of Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife, Gomer, and the birth of their kids. Much like his own family, the book of Hosea tells a one-sided love story of a God who, despite all evidence to the contrary, will not give up on his people. Join us as we explore the depth and radical faithfulness of a God who won't let go in the book of Hosea. So we have been studying the book of Hosea now. This is our eighth week of actually dealing with the text of the book of Hosea. Tonight we will be in chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, the text says, Put a trumpet to your lips. It's as if a bird of prey has flown over the Lord's house, because they have broken my covenant and have not kept my instruction. Israel cries to me, My God, we know you. Israel has turned away from the good. The enemy will pursue him. They set up kings, but not through me. They chose princes, but without my knowledge. With silver and gold, they crafted idols for their own destruction. Your calf is rejected, Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they remain guilty? The calf is from Israel. A person made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria will be smashed. Because they sow the wind, they will get the whirlwind. Standing grain, but no fresh growth, it will yield no meal. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Among the nations, they are now like a useless jar. They have gone up to Assyria, a wild ass wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they have bargained with the nations, I will now gather them up. They will soon be diminished due to the burden of kings and princes. When Ephraim added more altars to take away sin, they became altars to him for sinning. Even though I write out for him a large number of my instructions, they are regarded as strange. Though they offer choice sacrifices, though they eat flesh, the Lord doesn't accept them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied walled cities, but I will send a fire upon his cities and it will devour his fortresses. The word of God for the people of God. So over our study in the book of Hosea, there's been... Uh, two large sections of the book. In Hosea chapters 1 through 3, we get this narrative of Hosea and his wife Gomer. We see all of the difficulties of their marriage and what that signifies with regard to God and his relationship with the people Israel. We see this waywardness of Israel. We see them chasing after other lovers. Uh, we see them chasing after foreign gods, if you will, to pull that analogy together. This is the narrative that undergirds the entire book, the entire prophetic scope of the book of Hosea. Israel is 
is recalcitrant and rebellious and moving themselves away from God continually throughout this text. Once you turn the corner in Hosea chapter 4, really from chapters 4 through 14 through the end of the book, what we receive is Hosea's prophetic oracles. This is when the prophet stands up to address the people and does so by um, preaching a mini-sermon, if you will. In this time, the prophet's role was to be a mouthpiece for God, to speak judgment upon people, to speak uh, a word that would encourage them to repent, to turn to a different direction, to address issues within their time. A prophet, uh, dissimilar from how we usually frame them, was not looking out into the distant future saying, hey, in 500 years' time, something great is going to happen and we'll all be okay. A prophet was functioning more like a preacher of social justice, if you will, who was calling the people to task to say, here's an issue within our community that we need to address. We need to turn from our sins. We need to go in this direction. We need to start building the relationship with people in our community and reestablishing the relationship that we have with God. And throughout chapters 4 through 14, this is what Hosea is doing. Now, the problem in studying the book of Hosea, according to scholars, is it's incredibly difficult to identify where Hosea's sermons begin and end. At times, it seems like these texts just kind of bleed into one another, and it's difficult to see what Hosea would have said at any one moment in time. When you're reading this text, also remember that this is not just Hosea standing up in front of a people and reading out chapters 4 through 14 in one moment. These are different prophetic oracles that are happening at different times, addressing different needs within the community. For us, as we understand Hosea, it all goes back to chapters 1 through 3 and Israel as recalcitrant and rebellious and moving away from God. So the difficulty is finding the speeches in Hosea. Tonight, we're just going to look at chapter 8. And in particular, I really want to focus on the first seven uh, and a half verses of this chapter. We're going to be looking at uh, Hosea 8, 1 through 7a. Okay, but you can look at this whole chapter in chapter 8 as a prophetic oracle that addresses kings and idols and Assyria. I don't know if you guys are sick of hearing me talk about Assyria, but on the scope of everything that Hosea is saying, on the periphery is Tiglath-Pileser and the Neo-Assyrian Empire that is looking to invade and destroy Israel in the north. And they cannot detach their religious worship or their lives from the imminent threat that they might die at any moment because Tiglath-Pileser is on the warpath and will destroy them. Everything that Hosea is saying is informed by this geopolitical reality, okay? So we're looking here at what this has to do with kings and idols and Assyria in chapter 8. And really, I think that my job this evening, that looks really scary, but just kind of glance away. My job this evening, I think, is just to bring certain things to your attention and to allow you to think about how they might impact not only your understanding of the Bible, not only your understanding of God in the world, but also our understanding of who we are, okay? This is less of a sermon and more of a reflection. Now, the historical context in which Hosea is talking 
has this in the background. When Hosea shows up to begin prophesying, he is prophesying during the reign of someone named Jeroboam II. And Israel was experiencing a time of peace and um, production, I guess you could say. Everything was good in the land while Jeroboam II was reigning and ruling. But when Jeroboam II dies, it initiates this time of political upheaval and turmoil within the, the scope of Israel as a nation. You can see after the death of Jeroboam II, his son Zechariah takes over, and only six months after taking office, he is assassinated by a guy named Shalom. Uh, Shalom is then assassinated by a guy named Menahem only one month later. So within the scope of seven months, we've had four different rulers, Jeroboam, Zechariah, Shalom, and Menahem. Menahem rules for a little bit of time, and during this moment, he attempts to make peace with Tiglath-Pileser by paying him off, saying, please don't kill us. Here's some tribute. Here's some gold. Here's some silver. Here's some horses. Here's whatever we have. Don't invade. I want everything to be okay. But then things pick back up again. After Menahem dies, his son Pekahiah comes to office, and then he's assassinated by a guy named Pekah. And Pekah begins to um, stir the pot a bit, which initiates something called the Syro-Ephraimite War, which if you have been with us over the last couple of weeks, you're tired of hearing about the Syro-Ephraimite War. But I'm going to drill it home one more time for you. Pekah in the north is trying to build an alliance that will ward off the, um, the oncoming military war machine that is Tiglath-Pileser. So he goes into a league with the king of Damascus and attempts to get the king of Judah to join this anti-Assyrian coalition, but underlying all of that is Tiglath-Pileser III on this military campaign. He goes into Israel and he begins to go on a conquest in Israel, destroying the land that Pekah is ruling over, and this is all in the background of Hosea's prophetic announcement in Hosea chapter 8. I got to tell you guys, I went to the gym five times last week, every day. I've been running on the treadmill, but just put me preaching for five minutes. You hear how out of breath I am, how sweaty I'm getting already? It's kind of disgusting. I apologize for that. Okay, so this is all underlying the background of what Hosea is talking about. There's all sorts of political happenings that are going on. There has been assassination after assassination. There's been kings that have been taken off of the throne. It's a time of political turmoil and upheaval, and this will eventually lead to Israel's complete and utter destruction by Assyria in 722. Hosea never gets there. In his ministry, the only thing that he's looking back to is this beginning of the uh, decimation of the Israelite people at the hands of Tiglath-Pileser III. All of this serves as the backdrop for what Hosea is prophesying to his people. Remember, it's not 500 years down the road. It's right here, right now. And in light of Tiglath-Pileser beginning to destroy some of Israel, Hosea says, put a trumpet to your lips. This is classic like watchman language. You have someone looking after the city, blowing a shofar and trying to warn people of impending doom and destruction. There's some 
uh, difficulties here with this term. It says, it's as if a bird of prey. Some people would say this is a vulture waiting for the dead carcasses to arise. Other people would say it's more like an eagle who is waiting to act as a bird of prey and swoop down and kill. It's as if a bird of prey has flown over the Lord's house, blow a trumpet and get people awake and aware that impending doom is coming. It's here. It's now because these people have done two things. They've broken my covenant and they have not kept my instruction. They have broken the covenant relationship that God has with his people. God has put himself on the line for these folks in relationship and they have walked away. And we've seen this throughout the text of Hosea. They've gone after other gods. They've kind of incorporated these uh, um, aspects of pagan worship into their normal worship space. They haven't followed God's instructions, God's Torah. They have gone about uh, life in a totally different way that is not pleasing to God, which has led to the destruction and the punishment and the judgment of this people because they have broken the covenant, because they have not kept God's instructions. Yet Israel cries to God saying, my God, we know you. Literally in the Hebrew, that's my God, we, Israel, we know you. These people are crying out to God in the midst of their destruction and the, the, the beginning portion of, of the difficulties within Israel, which has led some scholars to say this is not a real cry of the people to God. Instead, James Luther May says it's in their distress after the Assyrian invasion of 733 when Tiglath-Pileser begins to have a conquest on the Israelite people. Israel wails in ritual lamentation to Yahweh for food and for protection. This means they go into the temple, they go into their sacred space and petition God for food and for protection, but they haven't done that up until this point. When things go bad, they end up here and say, we know you, God, remember, we are your people. Don't let this happen to us. He continues and says that Israel wails in ritual lamentation, sackcloth, ashes. They're petitioning God for food and protection, and they're whimpering to the sovereign whose lordship they reject. Their life has no sort of connection to what they're doing in the temple space when life isn't working out how they want it to. The great thing about the prophets, it puts a mirror right up to us. Even though this is in the mid-700s BC, now almost 3,000 years later, our religious practices... How different are they? When life is good, everything's great, but when stuff hits the fan, God, we know you. Remember me? We need food and protection. Except for us, it's not food and protection. Although Abe, every night when, when Abe wants to pray over dinner, says, dear Jesus, thank you for this food. Help to protect us. So Abe kind of knows this prayer, which actually that's, that's pretty Scary, I should move on into something else because this isn't a model that we should go after here. But these people, right, they're praying for food and protection when their life has not demonstrated that sort of care and concern. They've gone away from the covenant. They don't give a rip about relationship with God. They don't really give a rip about relationship with each other. And they have forsaken the Torah, the instructions, the teachings of God. And they show up into this space when the stuff has hit the fan to say, we know you. 
um, Elizabeth Ochtemeyer also lets us in on some of this. Each individual claims that his or her relationship with Yahweh is still an intimate one of knowledge. Really, the term there is acknowledgement. It's not just that we know God. It's that we acknowledge God. My God, we, we don't just know you. We acknowledge you. We live in light of you. We, Israel, remember? We're your kids. We acknowledge you now, but not so much before. Octomeyer says, Yahweh knows better than this prayer. We also see back in chapter 7, which we haven't studied and which we're not going to, it talks about the cries of Israel's heart um, coming from a place of, oh, the only word that's coming to my mind is bitterness, but that's not a, that's not a great word of, of what we're going after here. They're not legitimate cries. They're not legitimate prayers. It's really just for show almost. And we see that sort of laid out here where when the stuff hits the fan, they, they go into this moment of, of ritual lamentation, praying that God would protect them when they don't live in a way that, that, that demonstrates that um, commitment in their life. The text continues, Israel has turned away from the good. Most people would think that this is from the good God or from the good benefits of following God and being part of God's people. They've rejected everything that God has given to them to go after these other lovers to keep that metaphor going. And then the text turns and says, as a result, the enemy will pursue Israel. Again, James Luther Mays says, when good is rejected, what is left but evil? The evil of an enemy pursuing them to their own doom. They have rejected the good, and now evil is impending and will come after them in the form of Assyrian destruction. Now, this text, it kind of circles on how Israel has rejected the good, and that's really what I want to spend some time reflecting on this evening. There's really two different ways in which Israel has rejected the good in this passage. One is through their kingship, and the other is through their establishment of idols at this time. This is pretty provocative stuff here, so stick with me for a moment. This is the text in Hosea uh, chapter 8. It says, they set up kings. Israel has set up kings. They have established rulers, but not through me. They chose princes to be in power. They chose princes to be over them, but without my knowledge. This is God speaking here. They, these people, they set up kings, I didn't have anything to do with it. And they put princes in charge, but without my knowledge. This seems to go against a lot of what we have been taught. And all week I've been wrestling with how this plays out. We'll look at this in a moment. But just for uh, re refreshing our memories here, remember we've got Jeroboam II, who apparently... Uh, at least ruled over a time of, of peace in the land, but Zechariah and Shalom and Menahem and Pekahiah and Pekah, all the asterisks there denote people that were assassinated. These are the people that Israel has put up as kings, but not through God. And all week, I'm wrestling with this idea of people in power, and the text says, but not through God, because God had anything to do with it, and trying to square that away with Paul's text in Romans, where it says every person should place themselves under the authority of the government. This text has gotten a lot of play here in uh, the current landscape of our political stuff, technical term. 
It says, there isn't any authority unless it comes from God and the authorities that are there have been put in place by God. And this is how we often think. Whoever is in power has been placed there specifically by God to do some sort of job, which makes us sometimes have to kind of do some crazy dance around, oh, well, you see, maybe God put him there or put her there in order to do this or that or the other thing. Or it makes us look back over the pages of history to excuse what God has done by allowing certain people to be rulers at a certain place in time when those people were nothing short of atrocious. Here in this text, Paul is seemingly giving us this idea that there isn't any authority unless it comes from God, and the authorities that are there have been put in place by God, but Hosea is not saying that at all. In fact, Elizabeth Ochtemeyer, again, she's the only commentator that I looked at that made any sort of connection between Romans 13 and this passage. And she says, as Paul states in Romans 13, civil authority has been instituted by God to guarantee good conduct within the body politic. In other words, what Paul is after in Romans 13 is not that certain rulers are set in place and we should just... um, blindly obey, but that God is instituting a form of government, perhaps, to allow people to have checks and balances so that when something crazy happens to you, there are powers and authorities put in place that can do the work of justice in your life and in the life of the people that need them. But here she goes on to say, but God has had nothing to do with the choice of Israel's leaders. My mind was blown. Because I have only really been a person that looks at Romans 13 and tries to square some of our uh, oftentimes not great rulers or leaders with how God is working through them. And if you back up and look at Hosea, there's a different inference that is being made there. At times, the rulers that we have on the stage have not been placed there by God. We've elected kings and presidents and governors and fill in the blank. But God says, but not through me. You've elected princes, but without my knowledge, it's almost as if God maybe has walked away and let people decide who they want. And instead of looking at Romans 13, perhaps we should look at Hosea chapter 8. The implications of this, however, if we're looking not only at our political um, landscape, Okay? There's implications of this that go beyond. And I, I, I really, at this point, I just want to be the person that, that puts something before you, that allows you to think through it, that allows the spirit to move in you to discern what is worth taking and what is worth leaving. And then I want to move on. This is the first phase of why Israel has rejected the good because their kings are put on the throne and God has no knowledge or no desire for these to be the people that are ruling over Israel. Israel has become a mess. They're killing everything. They're putting people into power that shouldn't be in power. And God says, you're putting kings in place, but not through me. There's no form of this that has anything to do with me. You're not asking me. You're not looking to me. You're not um, wanting me to be involved. You're princes. I got no knowledge. And some scholars are taking the implications of this in a certain direction. This is from my doctoral supervisor who was talking about a moment in the life of the seminary where I graduated from most recently. And he says there was a time when they were trying to look for a new president. And a lot of the people in the community were praying to God that God would lead them to the right candidate because God had a plan for the seminary. And God was involved in the life of the seminary so much so that their prayers would elicit this one 
candidate because God had them chosen for the job. Now, I just want to put this out there to you. This is a provocative statement. Some of you will hate it. Some of you will love it. Some of you will be plagued by it all week. And that's my goal, okay? The latter, not the rest of it. Okay, he says, the seminary believes that God has a plan for such a transition of power, and it's important that we discover God's plan. I hold the heretical view, he's kind of tongue-in-cheek here, I hold the heretical view that there's no basis for thinking that God has such a plan. God leaves decisions to us. And being a loving father, God doesn't have plans for us, though God will have expectations about the principles needed by the person that we appoint. Provocative. Not a typical church sermon. In fact, over the last few months, I've heard a lot of Romans 13 sermons, and I haven't heard too many Hosea 8 sermons. And I don't know how this sits with you, but there's a part of me that sort of loves this, and not just because I'm a contrarian, okay? But it actually seems to make sense. God leaves the decisions to us, and this is how a lot of us think about life. When you're wrestling with which college to go to or which grad school to go to or who to marry, God leaves the decisions to you, and he's given you principles to employ in the decision-making process. And sometimes the decisions that we make are not good. It doesn't mean that God's abandoned us, but then in order to look back and say, God's had his hand on me from the very moment, and even in that terrible situation, this is what he wanted. I just kind of cringe at that a bit, because the things that we blame God um, to bring about in our lives by implication are potentially horrific. My dad has always said that God gets blamed for a lot of things that God doesn't do And at least in this passage, I'm open to that idea, and I'm open to us considering what we might have blamed God for doing that he has no knowledge of. It's not through him. It's just stuff that we have, in a bullheaded way, made happen because we think it's right, and we haven't let him in, even in the decision-making process. And at least in Hosea 8, this is what the prophet is addressing Israel, you have forsaken me. You've got people on the throne, but they're not my people. You've got princes in power, but I've got no knowledge of it. You have forsaken the covenant. You've walked away from relationship, and you cry to me when life hurts. But where are you in the meantime? The text continues, and it says, with silver and gold, they crafted idols for their own destruction. So Israel has made some mistakes with with going in a certain direction for establishing kings that God has has no knowledge of. And what I mean by no knowledge, I'm not saying that he doesn't, he's not aware of it, but he's not um, behind it. He's not a fan of what's going on. He's not uh, endorsing, for lack of a better term, the candidates. Uh, that are assassinating other rulers. That's not what he's doing here. And then it goes on to say that they're also um, crafting idols that will lead to their own destruction. Obviously, for any thoughtful, mildly biblically literate person, idols are a big no-no. 
uh, we can go back to the Ten Commandments. You must have no other gods before me. Then it goes on to say, do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Later in Exodus 20, says, don't make alongside me. I can't, I can't even get on board why the Common English Bible would translate in this way because it makes no good rational sense. But it says, don't make alongside me gods of silver or gold for yourselves. Don't make alongside me. Doesn't that sound weird to you? You you know what they're saying. Don't make gods that go alongside of me of silver or gold, uh, whatever. Later on in Exodus 34, it says, don't make metal gods for yourself. Leviticus 19, don't turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourselves. I am the Lord, your God. Later on in this passage in Hosea 8, it says, your calf is rejected, Samaria. And it's evoking this this longstanding tradition of Israel putting gold or silver into the fire and out comes a calf that begins to elicit the worship of God's people. You can go back to the Exodus where Moses is on top of Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments and the people are down below saying, what happened to Moses? I don't know. Give me your, give me your jewelry. Let's make a calf. And then they, they form this calf and then it says, behold your God, Israel. And meanwhile, Moses is up talking to God and Aaron has just made this calf and people are like, yeah, yeah. That's how I envision it. I don't know if that's how it, how it happened. But there's this, this calf motif. We also see Jeroboam, not Jeroboam 2, but Jeroboam 1, in the initial phases of when the kingdom was split, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And we have Jeroboam, the first one, who starts to institute idol worship by saying, we're in the north, and everybody's going to go down south to the temple. We can't let that happen. Let's, let's build some calves and put them in Bethel, and let's put them in Dan, and let's give these people some options. It's like the original seeker-sensitive church model. It's like, let's give people some options. They need some different service times. This is a contemporary service with the calf in Bethel. And this is the, the traditional service with the calf in Dan. And people are trying to give uh, different, different uh, religious expressions for the people in the north so they don't have to go down to the south. And this is what God is saying. Your calf is rejected. These idols that you have constructed for yourselves, they're rejected Samaria. That's code for the people of Israel. Anyone in the north who goes to worship these other Idols. This calf is from Israel, it says. Um, the calf is from Israel. A person made it all throughout the prophetic literature. Hosea has, or excuse me, Isaiah has some really funny tidbits about how ridiculous it is for people to be worshiping the God that they themselves make. So in Exodus 32, Aaron crafts this calf and then says, Behold your God. It's like, no, bro, you just, ma- you just made that. What are you guys doing? Like they've taken the wood, they've taken the silver, they've taken the gold, they fashioned it themselves, and now they are worshiping it so much so that it becomes a God for them. Originally, nobody knows if this was meant to be a different God or if this was meant to be like a cipher for God himself so that when you worship the calf, you're worshiping God. Almost like some form of, of an icon or something that's, that's helping your mind to reflect on, on the reason behind the icon. Nobody quite knows, but it has, it's very clearly become a God where the people are now dependent upon going and, and having some sort of ritual obeisance to this calf in Bethel or Dan or even in their own households that has become something other than Yahweh. It is not God, the text says, and the calf of Samaria will be smashed by Assyria. The text then concludes, or at least our passage in this text, it says, they sow the wind and they will get the whirlwind. In other words, Israel, 
you are going to get what you asked for. You want Assyria to be involved? You want to pay them tribute? You want to keep me out of this? I'll give you Assyria and it will not be good for you. You are sowing the wind and you're going to get so much more in return negatively. You want to incorporate these other people to keep you safe. You're trying to stiff arm me and keep me out of it. It is not going to end well for you, Israel. Thus ends our points of reflection for this evening. The prophetic literature, as I mentioned earlier, it is important because it holds up this mirror where we look at ourselves and say, how do I fit in to this story? It's easy for us to look to that text and say, when life is going good, maybe God's involved, maybe God's not involved. But for a lot of times, we come back to our roots when the stuff has hit the fan. We live kind of on autopilot, whether that's because we want to prove our worth to God or because we just don't feel that it's quite necessary until something happens. And then we start making big, bold claims. And along the way, that covenant has been broke. That, that following of the Torah has been broke. And for us, this is not about law keeping so much as it is um, living as a follower of Jesus. And when things are okay, eh, it's an afterthought. But are there moments when we come back and we're forced to make bigger and bolder claims because we know that we have left Jesus out of it? I also, I keep coming back to some of these same points, but throughout the prophetic literature where they talk about the kings that, that, that God has no knowledge of or they're not through him, I do wonder if there are things in our lives that we just sort of um, put our shoulder down and run through the wall and maybe God is an afterthought in that entire process. I know as I stand here before you today, like I am super guilty of that. And a lot of times it's because I say, God's given me a mind. I can, I can make a good decision. I don't need this, that, or the other thing. When really what I do need is to stop, to pray, to listen, to include God in that decision-making process. And sometimes I forsake that for my own agenda. I'm hopeful that in the midst of this text, which, which is um, difficult and it does have... Uh, some weight to it that we can consider how we fit into this and not just in a moralistic sense because there are ways in which we have let God down. There are ways in which we have uh, broken that covenant. There are ways in which we have not followed Jesus to the degree that we want to or that maybe he even wants us to and that impacts uh, our future um, going forward, maybe even just the guilt and the shame that we wear. My hope today is we don't just look at this moralistically, but we begin to see how Jesus fits into this whole matrix as one who is calling us to follow him, to be about the things that he is about, to live that out in a way that is consistent, where our lives don't just look different here, but here is a reflection of how we live out there throughout the week with our families and with our coworkers and with the people in our lives that God has placed before us. My hope is that we will be a people who live consistently, who don't need to be called out time and time again for doing one thing in the temple and one thing in our real lives. My hope is that the, our passion and our drive for following Jesus will be the thing that characterizes us, not just here, but even with the people who don't know us quite as well, that they will see something different in us because Jesus has so transformed us and changed us that we are the people that are about his work and the 
challenge today is for you to figure out where you can contribute to that beginning right here and right now. Not in a guilt-ridden sort of way, but in a reflection where you understand what you have received. Life, hope, forgiveness, maybe even a second chance if you want to frame it that way. You have been reconciled to the creator of the universe and the only response that you can have in light of that is to be a reflection of that goodness in the world. I hope that that is what defines us as a people. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.